Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production between the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. My name is Mark Bonica, and I'm an assistant professor in the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy. Today's guest is Heather Staples Lavoie, the president of Genia in Manchester, New Hampshire. I had the opportunity to hear Heather speak recently at a University of New Hampshire CEO forum during which she described the exciting work Jania is doing in the health analytics field. So I invited her to be on the program to share both her personal journey as a serial healthcare entrepreneur and Jania's story as well. In the podcast, we discuss Heather's career and how she discovered a passion for healthcare analytics. We then talk about various products and services Jania has developed to help improve the delivery of healthcare and mitigate provider burnout. I really enjoyed talking with Heather because her experiences in small firms are so different than mine, and I believe analytics, AI, and machine learning are going to transform healthcare. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And if you do enjoy the podcast, won't you leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you may be accessing this recording. It helps other people discover us. Thanks for listening, and here is Heather staples Lavoy. Welcome to the podcast, Heather. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to speak today. So you went to Boston University for bilingual education and then ultimately earned a BA in elementary education from Notre Dame College in elementary education. What drove your interest in education, and, and what did you hope to do with it? When you- sure. So I think I've had I've naturally been inquisitive, and so have just been a lifelong learner. And in along with that is I love to share information. So I think um, the you know the prospect of teaching came fairly naturally to me in terms of being able to share knowledge and help others. And and obviously education is a pretty mission driven profession. And, and for me, uh, I've always wanted to find meaning in the work that I've done. I grew up as sort of the, you know, first generation to, um, attend college in my family and grew up on the west side in, of Manchester, New Hampshire. Which is where we are today. Which is where we are today, cool. um, right across the river from where I grew up. And, um, and so I didn't necessarily have a lot of visible role models where I could envision a job in business, certainly not as an entrepreneur, certainly not in a leadership capacity, but, but education profession was something that was very tangible. And so it was something that, yep, all seen teachers and had great admiration for the teachers that I had, you know, throughout elementary as well as, you know, secondary education. And so it was an area that was of interest to me at the time. And so yet you didn't really wind up working in education, or did you for a short period of time? I, I did for a short period of time. So, you know, I came into healthcare. I actually came into healthcare as a high school student, as an after-school job, and had an opportunity to do all range of things in a physician practice. At the time, it was before there were medical assistants, and so I was able to assist in procedures, processing lab work, filing, processing bills for reimbursement. And so I, you know, started that sort of business type of education and healthcare education when I was in high school and when I and worked through college and when I graduated 
I you know, was interested in English as a second language, and um, that was a long time ago. And so there weren't any ESL programs in the city, and there certainly weren't bilingual education. There was in Boston, but not in New Hampshire. And so I had various part-time jobs teaching English as a second language, but really no full-time opportunity. And, and so the doctor I was working for at the time really convinced me that, you know, I had a real aptitude for business and maybe I should just pursue an MBA that, you know, the student loans as, as they were, that, you know, <laughs> that a business degree may, you know, prove yeah. well for me. And it seemed to make a lot of sense because it, particularly with teaching, you have to wait a whole other year. If you don't get a job in the fall, you wait another year before you have a job. And, and I had student loans to pay off. And so it seemed like a pretty logical place to go. And I had a strong interest in healthcare. Okay. So you started working, I saw from your early kind of experiences, you, you spent some time at HealthSource mm -hmm. and at Cigna. What were you doing for those organizations? Sure. So I came on to HealthSource out of my MBA program, and I was hired to manage physician practices that they had acquired at the time. And pretty soon after I came on to HealthSource, which was kind of a startup on its own um, at the time, um, they had purchased physician practices to make sure that they had spots for their own members. It was a HealthSource was an insurance plan, and but the state legislature actually banned. Um, any kind of exclusivity. So all of the practices they acquired really had to be open to any payers. There really wasn't then a financial benefit for them to own those practices. And so pretty quickly after I was hired to run practices, they were selling off those practices. And I moved over into health plan operations, and I moved into a strategy and planning function. And and that gave me at HealthSource pretty wide berth to do a whole range of projects, including um, helping to build some of the earliest data warehouses in healthcare. There was a, a data warehouse there, and I helped to sort of add on, advise on that, and, and then work in building web reporting systems for operational reporting, as well as um, I actually helped to bring in um, Six Sigma to the organization and, and working with GE as a customer of ours. And um, and then Cigna acquired HealthSource back in, I think, around 1999. So I kind of jumped over your MBA. Did you do an MBA in healthcare? Was it a, ge a general MBA or was it something specific in healthcare? It was a general MBA. Okay. And, um, and then I pursued some postgraduate work in computer information systems. Okay. So... You had some sense that you wanted to do something with information systems, I guess. I, you know, back in the physician practices, even when I was in high school, we were implementing some of the first billing systems okay. at the time. And so I had a hand in implementing the system at the time, defining some of the setups, even some of the things that we do today in healthcare, we think of as population health. At the time, it was a multi-specialty physician practice, and we were doing colon polyp recalls, which effectively is population health. It was just done for different purposes. Purposes, but I helped to set a lot of that up, and and then even at HealthSource um, was involved in some of the early data warehousing, as well as implementing some of the electronic medical record systems. So I just had a natural interest um, and an inclination, and I and I think whether it was computer systems, whether it was financial analysis, 
I just was interested in doing new things. And so I, that's what led me to, I think, a broader career is if there was a new opportunity, I jumped into it, whether maybe I had the background to do it or not. I figured it out along the way. And, and so it gave me a really a, you know, a great rich experience. And in a, an organization like HealthSource at the time, because it was a startup and it was very entrepreneurial, there was a, it wasn't very siloed. And so you had an ability to get involved in, in projects that you probably couldn't have done in a larger organization. And with Cigna, it was clear that that was far more, once they acquired HealthSource, that was far more structured of an organization. And I was afforded some great latitude, um, even at Cigna, to get involved in a range of initiatives. But it certainly wasn't as flexible as the environment was in at HealthSource. So that kind of um, flexible jump from kind of different projects is a thing that you appreciate. You enjoy that kind of environment. I do. I do. I. I definitely. I've. You know. I have. Um, you know. Jania today, where I. You know. Serve as as president. I uh, is a, is a startup organization, and I had done a prior startup organization. I've also helped to build subsidiary organizations for other companies, and I've worked in consulting capacity. So I really enjoy um, uh, entrepreneurism and and the ability to grow things, sort of de novo or participate at some of the earlier stages. I'm. It's not that I don't like running operations. There's a real value to having something that's repeatable from day to day. And you know, startups are hard. It's a it's a labor of love. And but it but it's something that is you know it just pushes. It really challenges you intellectually. And so I've that's I guess it goes along with the inquisitiveness that I've always had and sort of interest in doing new things. Entrepreneurism sort of you know feeds that fuels that. So while you were at Cigna, while you were at HealthSource, you, you kind of mentioned you were working with early data warehousing, mm-hmm. developing web-based applications, and kind of this all leads to what we think of today as analytics. Is that accurate? That, absolutely, yeah. How did you get interested in that? How were you, why were you drawn to that in particular? Sure. Well, the, I mean, it, the, the data warehouse that we had was one of the earlier ones. Um, it was actually, you know, really sophisticated at the time and even, even by today's standards in terms of the volumes of data that we had access to that data. And it was pretty democratized across the organization. So lots of people had access to be able to then run queries against that. And, and I think what I needed it for decision making purposes for my job. So, to, Depending upon the project, I, you know, I used it in Six Sigma, um, efforts to, you know, to look at root cause analysis. Um, we looked at, you know, why people were showing up at the emergency room without referrals. And, and so we used it to sort of understand the business and also to understand healthcare cost and quality um, and to look at, you know, where people were seeking care. And so it, we, we really highly leveraged it on a day to day basis to drive decision making, whether it was on a project basis or for, for the health plan operations. And so I used it just as an essential tool on a regular basis. And, um, and then, and had an opportunity because I could acquire some new skills, do more and some deeper data analysis associated with it. And then I think because I've also had an interest in maybe optimizing when the same questions were presented over and over and over again, people would have to run these queries over and over and over. We saw an opportunity to build a system that would have some of these as canned reports 
that we could deliver. So I, you know, it just, it just sort of started maybe as a seed and then grew as, okay, how could we optimize this? How could we get this out to more people? And then HealthSource had corporate offices in Hooksett, New Hampshire, and then they had their health plan in Concord, New Hampshire, but they also had plans in other states and, and they did in Massachusetts. And so I had an opportunity to also help work on um, doing a data warehouse conversion. And because I had been using it so much and it was a new, opportunity I worked on then actually leading the effort to convert them over to a new data warehouse. So it was it was just a great opportunity at the time to leverage some new technology that also helped inform strong decision making. But a lot of what we were doing back, I mean that was, you know, late 90s, it's uh, we're doing a lot of the same things today, more sophisticated managing you know, higher volumes of data, better integration of clinical data. But it's a lot of what we're doing today at Genia is really what we were doing back in the 90s there as well. We're just yeah, hopefully doing a much better job of it. Yeah, I'm sure you are. So you were at Cigna for a while, and then you helped build a firm called ChoiceLinks. That's correct. Can you tell me a little bit about ChoiceLinks and how... Did you leave Cigna to do that, or was that part of Cigna? Um, no, I left Cigna to to do it. It was after I spent a couple of years after the acquisition of HealthSource by Cigna, and and really felt like I was um, more of an entrepreneurial type of a person than maybe a, a large um, company type of person. It just sort of fit my personality a bit better, and and it was a great it was a great chance to start up a company really at when um, startups were having their first boom. And um, and it was really also at a time in healthcare where consumerism, the f- sort of first wave of consumerism was coming into play and people were considering the switch from defined benefits in healthcare to defined contribution. Can you explain what you mean by consumerism? Sure. So giving um, up until that point, it, you know, insurance plans were largely a decision that was made by the employer and employees got whatever plan the employer decided upon. And, um, and yet, and, 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 and it had also moved to sort of a benefit style that was more copay driven. And so you could use as many services as you want, but you might have just a nominal copay and it removed people, employees, but their family members, it move, removed them really from what the overall cost of healthcare was. It isolated them to a certain extent. You know, prior, back in the 80s, even when I was in physician practices, there were indemnity plans where people had a deductible and they might have a percent coinsurance that they would pay. And so if you were to say to them, I'd like you to go over and have a CT scan, they would say, well, how much does that cost? Sort of the same way they might, you know, for veterinary care before they went and pursued it they would ask what it costs. When we moved to a copay style of healthcare benefits in, you know, through the early 90s, mid, all the way, you know, through the 90s, people stopped asking that question. And people felt like they were more just entitled. I have an insurance plan. If I want a CT scan, I should get a CT scan. It what cost me $10. And it should cost me ten dollars, and but what happened was then the healthcare costs exploded, and um and so and and it was really difficult to then have for physicians to have conversations with patients about whether it was warranted or not and whether they could afford it or not, and so healthcare costs were moving at such a, a, a you know increasing at such a great rate that everyone was sort of clamoring for something has to be done, and there was this big shift to moving back to a style of more of a deductible, employees having, they would say, more skin in the game, but sort of, you know, a more um, impetus to 
evaluate costs of healthcare and appropriateness of healthcare services before they before they you know pursued them and uh, and so there were health savings account style plans that were coming into play at that time to help offset sort of the cost and to help have an impact on healthcare cost increases and so it was right at that time that people were saying not only might we introduce these savings account style plans with a deductible and move away from a copay for everything but maybe we would even go as far as we've gone in the retirement industry where people used to have a defined retirement plan and then all of a sudden it went to more of a 401k style where the employer would contribute some amount of dollars but it was up to the employee to make their own decisions and and so it was thought at that time that maybe healthcare would even go that far that employers might give a fixed some and employees would be on the you know the broader market making a decision about what was the most appropriate healthcare benefit plan for them and um and could make more of their own decision about it it never or and it still hasn't really gone all the way there um, i think there's certainly more consumerism now and with more people having individual plans um there's more of that but but it never went that far and so choice links at the time we felt like you know people still need some decision making tools if in fact they were going to make a decision about the benefit plan they've never had experience in deciding what is appropriate and so we built a software system that would, would that would facilitate that decision making process for consumers in designing their own benefit plan and um, and we built an underlying actuarial model that would also help to solve or account for adverse selection so the sickest people didn't only buy the richest plan and the healthiest people bought the lowest plan and then we would end up having a problem with 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 how prices were set for those. So we built this benefits configurator where people could go in and answer some questions about themselves and their family situation and their use of healthcare, and then it would make recommendation um, for the, a plan design that was, that was right for them. And then we had an online enrollment um, system that would then allow them to enroll in benefits, and then we would process the data. We would send it to the claim system to load them up in so that they could have, the, um, have their benefits administered after that. So it was sort of a, a market? Where you creating? I'm not sure. I, so yeah. I, I follow what you're saying about in terms of you know doing the analysis work. Were you were you was ChoiceLinks actually selling? Was this like an individual really selling individual plans? Is that what you were doing? Um, so at the very outset, what we actually you know worked with on the back end. We looked at working with a third party administrator, to, um, but we never took on insurance risk on our own. Um, where we ultimately settled was we we sold the software, and so we had software as a service that we sold to health plans, and then we also would sell to large self funded employers who then would have a, their own third-party administrator on the back back end okay. um, that could then leverage the capabilities for their employee population. And Cigna ultimately also bought ChoiceLinks. Um, so I was acquired by Cigna twice, and they bought ChoiceLinks, and they used it um, both um, initially for configuration of benefits but also for online enrollment for their mid-market customers. And so it's I think up until about a year ago, it was still independent as ChoiceLinks, and now I think it's been – it's all completely part of of Cigna currently as a as a standard offering not as a separately branded um. I, I, I was gonna say I, I tried to google it and and it rolled me directly into Cigna I did it a couple of times I'm like all right 
Yeah. They've rebranded it. Yes, you know, they have. Yeah. But it was, it had its own brand and, and really up until I think just over a year ago was a wholly owned subsidiary and, um, and provided software services to the parent organization, Cigna, and they saw it as a good tool for, um, for their mid-market customers. So what do you mean by mid-market customers? Um, so, uh, so large customers, every, so every health plan defines it a little bit differently in terms of what their large group customer segment is, um, but anywhere from you know, 500 to 5,000 lives um, might be typically considered a mid-market. So the primary customers then were actually uh, insurance companies. So you were selling the service to insurance companies. Insurance companies, self-funded employers, also brokers um, who might want to, we um, provide it out as well. So were you one of the you were, you were one of the team that actually built this that's thing correct. from the ground up. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. So, um, yep. So I was one of the co-founders of the company. We started it above someone's garage, like yeah. you hear about that happening. It was a really nice garage, um, but it was, a, but was, it was one a nonetheless. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the, the architect and I, chief architect and I sat sort of shoulder to shoulder designing all every data element and the screens and um, from the ground up. So it was just the two of you at the at the outset. Um, so it was um, that we had a CEO, COO, a CTO, and then the architect and I as wow. the as the sort of initial founding group That's for the organization. So, um, how did you come to make the decision that this was something that you thought you could do and 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 build and it would be successful? You know, I I heard another entrepreneur talking about it, and he said, you know, I think all entrepreneurs have to be naive because if you actually thought through the of how hard it was going to be and all the risks associated with it, you would never do it. And so I think there's a bit of, uh, you know, I have an optimistic streak, and and it was a bit like jumping in the pool, like why not? I know these people; they're successful people. Seems like a great team. The market opportunity is ripe right now because of, you know, it was a, it was a strong culture of startups at the time, but particularly because there was a real change that was going on in healthcare at the time. And I figured, why not? If, if it doesn't work, I can always go get a regular job. You know, I'm eminently employable. And so if I need to go find a job, if this doesn't work out, then I can do that. So, I mean, I think part of it is, when you grow up and not have a lot of money, you know, you, uh, there's, you know, sort of nothing I couldn't do to, you know, make, you know, my bills. And so I always knew that I could fall back on temp work at the time if I needed to. I mean, I would make it happen. Wow. I mean, so I've never, you know, I, I, my career was in the military. I was just a, you know, I'm the opposite. I'm a big organization guy. I retired from the military, joined another big organization, you know, so I just kind of, I mean, this is just really cool to, to, to think about. I mean, it just it takes a lot of courage to kind of jump out there and I'm going to make this thing from, from nothing. You know, I really admire that. I mean, what were the kind of early days like as you were like conceiving of this with your, with that small team and imagining it? I mean, were you taking it? Did you, were you all taking salaries? Did you have, I mean, how did you like find your first customers and how did you fund that at the beginning? Or was it just out of, out of pocket and just? Yeah, so um, we had some initial uh, seed capital at the very beginning. Uh, some of the people did not, so uh, you know, a couple people didn't. A cu- couple of us did take a salary at the beginning, you know, moderate um, salary to start. We did a um, an angel round of funding initially, and, and what does that mean? 
Oh, I, mean, I know what that means, but sure, sure. people listening would. Sure. So it's sort of before you might um, go out to a venture capital firm. So if you're looking for, you know, one to three, five million dollars, you might do, sometimes they call it a friends and family round where you go and put your hat out and ask people you know who might believe in you if they want to contribute. And, and so we called on some connections and people that might want that, you know, sort of had disposable income that they might want to take some outside risk in some people that they believed in and so raised uh, about two and a half million dollars at that point you know from some direct acquaintances and some sort of a little bit further afield that were you know former executives at at Citibank and some folks that we knew in the banking industry who had some disposable income that were interested in healthcare at the time and, and understood that there were some changes afoot and it was worth an investment yeah. and then subsequent to that then we pursued um, funding through some venture capital firm. And so we went through, um, you know, several rounds of, of funding um, during our tenure. So we founded it at the end of 1999, sold it to Cigna in 2005, and I stayed on through um, 2007. So we had, you know, several rounds of funding that got us to 2005. What's it like trying to pitch a business like this that, you know, has basically some com- a couple of computers and some you know, really talented people and some interesting ideas, but no, like there's no physical, like, hey, I can show you my building or I can, not even any customers, you know, I mean, what is, what's it like going through that process? Sure. I, you know, it's, you know, it, you know, my perspective on it now is different than, um, than it was back at the time when, you know, initially when we uh, launched the company. It was exciting times. There was lots of money to be had. And so it was very exciting. You know, I think the general feeling around the organization, everyone, you know, was very passionate about healthcare, about what we could do. I mean, so, and, um, and so to a certain extent, you could bring that passion into, uh, the conversations with the VCs. They obviously were looking at what is a total market opportunity, you know, sort of realistically, you know, how are you going to be able to secure new customers and, and you're having to back it up with a lot of data on the market, the market changes, the network that you've been able to develop, early leads, prototypes that you've built into the system, you know, anything that you can provide to them tangibly to show them a path to um, revenue initially and, you know, ultimately, you know, break even and, and, and you know, and at some point profitability. And, um, but there's a, you know, I, it's, it's kind of like cold calling in terms of sales. I mean, there's a lot of no's. And, and we didn't take a big tranche of money early on because we didn't want to give up too much of the company. Unfortunately, the markets all dried up with 9-11. Um, sort of the, 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 the dot-com boom went yeah. bust and then all mar- all capital markets dried up. And during, at the time of 9-11, and unfortunately we were out for a round at that time. And, and so that became then very difficult. So pre that date, securing funding and, and getting entree with VC firms was very different than post that date. Fortunately, we had secured some customers before that and had, a, you know, viable product and, but it still became very, very difficult um, after the fact. And we were sort of strung along by our current investors, almost on a paycheck by paycheck basis for a while with funding, which, which made it, you know, very, very, 
very difficult. And at, when 9-11 happened, we had to make a really difficult decision to cut the company in half and let half of our, you know, team members who had been, you know, shoulder to shoulder and passionate about it with us, um, we had to let them go and, um, and reform the company with a much lower cost structure in order to remain viable. And, and that was, you know, that was one of the hardest days in my career. Because these were, you know, these were your friends. These are people that put in, you know, every ounce of energy. And we had to step back and really look strategically about the functions that we needed, the essential functions, and what the long-term strategy was going to be for the organization. And we were doing more on a services basis at that time. And we had to really focus in just on the technology and narrow in on the product set that to, in order to secure ongoing funding, um, and also, um, you know, hopefully get to some path to profitability. So when you say you were doing more on services, you were selling services and you were going to cut that portion and, and focus on that's correct building the technology with kind of this longer right view of this is what this is the real value here is. That's correct. Okay. Interesting. And so, you survived the, the 9-11 we did. period. And at what point did, did you make the decision to sell to Cigna? Um, so we were, um, you know, we were looking at, um, you know, all through, you know, sort of end of 2004. It was, it was, you know, sort of challenging even thereafter. We had strong contracts with customers and were providing great service and um, people were very happy um, with what we were doing, but it was still difficult. The market was still slow. And, and so new customer acquisition was still very difficult um, as a startup because people, you know, were, they, they didn't want to put a lot of faith in a startup organization given what they saw just happened. Um, and so we knew that we needed to get to an exit and, um, and find a long-term place for the organization and that, you know, acquisition made the most sense, um, that just continuing to get rounds of funding, we, we didn't think that we would be able to do that over the long haul. So we started looking, you know, in probably 2004 and in through 2005, Cigna had been evaluating our capabilities for licensing it. And so it was a good opportunity rather than just license the software, um, to, enter into conversations um, about acquisition. And, and, and we knew that that provided for the team that remained and that we also built back up with new customers um, that would give them a long-term home. And many of the team members are still there today. And, um, and so it would give them a long-term home and a long-term place for the technology and, and a good exit. It didn't mean a great payout for any of us, just given how times were and because of the rounds that we had to go after that there wasn't a big payday okay. in any stretch, but we did provide for a great working environment and a great job for a lot of people for, for a good amount of time. And then, you know, like the, for the people that wanted to stay along, then, you know, Cigna has been great to them. So you were with, you sold to Cigna, mm -hmm. you, you went with the company. So uh, was that a part of the, part of the deal? Was that was part was of the deal. How, how many of the, like the founders stayed on past the, the sale? Um, uh, two. Well, yeah, three, one for a, very, a short amount of time, but just two of us really stayed on yeah. after. Okay, neat. But we um, had a list of a whole list of key individuals, so they might not have been founders, but there were other people that were indicated as key individuals, key to the success um, on the development team and quality assurance on the servicing side and product uh, that we really targeted that we wanted to ensure that we retained post acquisition. 
and how did you make sure that they stayed? Um, so typically you might, um, as part of a, a structure, you might provide um, some sort of incentive compensation um, based on certain targets, whether that's revenue or whether that's product um, development, as well as um, some level of stay put bonuses for some individuals based on the level in the organization. So you stayed with Cigna for, for two more years. Then what did you, what did you do? Sure. So I, um, I actually went out and did some independent consulting and, um, and had an opportunity at the time I had uh, just had uh, my second child and wanted to stay local um, as much as possible and had an opportunity to do a lot of local consulting with the New Hampshire Citizens Health Initiative and with the Institute for Health Policy and Practice at UNH. In 2010, you started here with Jania, or I'm not sure here, here, but with Jania, um, uh, as the chief operating officer, is that correct? So Jania was a consulting organization, okay. and one of, and so through the Citizens Health Initiative, I was an independent consultant, and I started also consulting with Jania, and one of our engagements was with Capital Blue Cross in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, which is now Jania's parent organization. Um, one of the projects then through Jania that I was tasked with was actually helping to put the business plan together and launch the subsidiary for Capital Blue Cross. And so then Capital Blue Cross bought the assets of Jania, named the um, subsidiary company Jania, okay. and um, and then came on as the chief operating officer at, at, at the launch of the organization. Okay, interesting, because I, I was going to try to figure out, was it a running concern already? So it sort of was, but it wasn't what it is today. It's not, not in any stretch, just purely consulting, a lot of um, strategy consulting, um, work on building subsidy, other subsidiary organizations and but it was just a few um, healthcare leaders at the time okay and um, and so it's very different uh, you know once we launched it it really the 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 new nuco um, as we named it during the business planning process um, then just took on the brand of of Genia and really was much broader in scope and so Genia today is um, we provide clinical services um, we have analytics products um, remote patient monitoring we have a full range of consulting and professional services as well. And so it's much broader in its scope than, um, than purely consulting. What was it envisioned during the initial contract you had with Capital Blue Cross? What, mm -hmm. what did they reach out and say, we want to do this? Sure. So they had an interest in diversification. So at the time, it was right around healthcare reform. Um, a lot of the national health insurers were starting to diversify their um, their lines of business. And Capital Blue Cross is a bit unique in that it has... So Blue Cross plans are licensed. Um, they have licensed territory from the uh, association. And Capital Blue Cross has license in 21 counties in, in Pennsylvania, central Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, but it, it's one of the only ones that has no territory of, it own, of its own. So it has complete overlap competition from other Blue Cross plans. Oh. And so that makes it, you know, even more difficult, um, you know, to, to establish market share and maintain that market share in, the, in that community. So and they could so, potentially be competing with another Blue Cross selling to this. So that's correct. A university down there, for example, could have two different Blue Crosses it could choose from. 
That's correct. Okay. Wow. That's correct. And that yes, and that happens all the time. Yeah. It is because if you think about the Blues Network, it, that you know those things are the same. So you're competing on product differentiation, you're competing um, on servicing, um, clinical services, and price. And um, and so Capital was looking at other ways that it might also diversify its business into non-insurance based lines of business. Also, because with the Affordable Care Act, there was some degree of uncertainty in the market. Um, about insurance-based businesses, and it was, you know, there was a benefit to looking at, um, you know, some outside businesses as well. It also had a need for innovative capabilities in its market. And so Genia for Capital Blue Cross was kind of a twofer, which is what if we built some really innovative products and services that we could leverage in our local market and but also could then use them across the country and sell them across the country so that you know you're able to get some economies of scale um, off of the investments that you make and so we were um, so it was set up to do exactly that to build analytics products um, as well as provide clinical services on a national basis and then also drive that that to help to support our parent organization as well so we've always been at arm's length from our organization as a wholly owned. Um, we certainly roll up to our parent organization, but we have, you know, uh, a, a strong separation because we do sell to, you know, outside organizations as well. Okay. So what does it what does it actually mean to be a wholly owned subsidiary as opposed to, say, a standalone corporation? So all of the assets of our company are whole, hundred uh, percent are owned. If we were a uh, like pub- publicly traded, then hundred percent of the stock would be owned by our parent organization. They are a not-for-profit, and so they they just own all of the the assets. They also own all of the liabilities associated with with the subsidiary. But we roll up entirely to them, so we don't have um, outside ownership of our organization um, and um, and we don't op- get to operate completely independently as well so in terms of like financing and things like that how does that work Sure. Um, so the financing is, uh, so, you know, we applied for uh, rounds of funding as if we were going out to a venture capital firm, but our venture capital firm is our parent organization. Okay. And, and so they, um, they have provided the funding, but we provide, you know, uh, full business plans, multi-year projections. We have a full accountability um, to them based on then the, the funding that they would provide. And so it's not just funding of operations. It really is treated at arm's length, you know, just as if they were an outside funder. And we report into the board of the parent organization as well as the finance and investment committee of the our parent organization. This sounded sounds like you were the I mean, they obviously chose you because this is sounds very much like what you did with Choice Links. Is it is there a or or is it a lot different or no, I, I, yeah, I mean, startups are, you know, have sort of similar patterns associated with them. I had experience in building, you know, a company from the ground up and participating in a startup at HealthSource. I also um, helped to build a subsidiary under contract for another organization, so had an experience um, with that as well. So it definitely was a bit in my DNA to help support it. And then I obviously had, you know, wraparound support from the parent organization where we needed as well as, and then an ability to bring in outside talent. To, to help fill in all the areas where my skills did not fill. Sure, <laughs> so yeah. It, it takes a team. It uh, absolutely takes a team. Um, so what were the early stages like uh, as you, you and, and your colleagues started to build this new, new organization? Sure. You know, we're... So, 
when we launched the organization, we actually seeded it with the clinical services team from the from Capital Blue Cross. Um, so we had from day one a little different, lot different than maybe the ChoiceLinks experience. We had ongoing operations from day one for a very significant client. You know, we had we had to, to help to support seven hundred fifty thousand members from day one. And, um, and so all the associated systems and, and then at the same time, we had to then stand up, um, an analytics function and, in, in the organization. Um, we, when we first launched the company, we had a CEO who was an executive vice president at Capital Blue Cross, Mike Miranda, who was our CEO and, and was phenomenal, great leader, um, stayed for, uh, uh, you know, to get the company up and launched and then, um, brought in, new leader as a CEO of Jania, Mark Karen, who's our current CEO today, who also reports into then the overall parent company CEO. And he, you know, he had dual accountability, both to analytics and reporting within the health plan, as and he also served as the CIO for the health plan, as well as an accountability for Jania. And so they started to build some of the, as we were standing up the clinical operations and getting all of that ready and building some of the, the we have a, education arm, the Jania Institute, where we do education and training. We're building up that arm of the organization and some professional services. He um, worked inside of Capital to start building the, the analytics product that we have, Theon, and then we move that asset over into Jania as well. So different from ChoiceLinks, where it was really purely ground up, starting from zero and waiting some time to have customers. Here, we had customers from day one, and then we're building analytics, you know, up at the same time and then looking at outside markets for those analytics at the same time we were providing services for 750,000 members. Wow. So I'm, I'm guessing it was kind of like, we're going to give you these customers. We don't, we don't have this capability, but we expect you to come up with it quickly. Is that kind of the idea? Was It was. It was. It was um, It was the analytics solution, Theon, which is our analytics solution, was started at, in the analytics and um, reporting area at Capital and then brought over and then we and then we brought it out to so, market as well. So you were supposed to kind of put rocket power under it and Exactly. Yep. Define. Exactly. Yep. Define the markets and go out and pursue customers and operationalize it. And you know, there's, you know, I I had an opportunity to speak to my daughter's high school careers class, and and I said, you know, I hate to break it to you, but startups as there's no overnight success. I mean, maybe if it's something really very very simple, but most startups take seven to ten years um, to really build a strong product operationalize that product, bring it to market, mature it, um, that it, that it takes time to you, you know, to make sure that you have it sort of bulletproof in the market and, um, and then can support it on an ongoing basis as a going concern. So a lot of the work that, you know, that we had done and have done is, um, is really standing up all the operations around then the products and services so that we can meet our service levels and, um, and support our customers in the best possible way. Well, so you started to talk about some of the products that, that you have. So why don't we start with Theon Analytics? Sure. What, what is it and, and how does it work? And, and I mean, you've kind of hinted at it a little bit, but maybe kind of explain what is this product? So the Theon is uh, really helps to support value-based care and population health that is in healthcare today. So we, 
our interest as a whole in Genia is improving the systems that provide care so that we can get to um, better outcomes in cost and quality and we can provide for more tightly coordinated care for all the people that are involved in care, whether that's the health plan, the hospital system, the physicians themselves, nurses, family members, and clearly the, the person at, at the center of it, the patient, the person, the, the, the member. Um, and so we're providing for systems that help to then support that collaboration of care across the board. And so Theon Analytics then helps to drive insights that help to support that those exercises. So Theon Analytics provide information on predictive risk, predictive costs. They um, help to identify a population and break it down into the healthy people that might have rising risk, people that have chronic illnesses, people that then have catastrophic illnesses, and make recommendations as to then the most appropriate interventions or the most appropriate care for those different populations based on um, their individual situation. So we look at the population as a whole, break that down, use the insights to break that down, and then also then provide for then detail down to the individual level. And it's around cost. It's around use of healthcare. And so we do things like we predict people's likelihood of admission to a hospital, their likelihood to use an emergency room, um, their likelihood um, of a complication from um, having diabetes, their likelihood to get diabetes. And so we're doing a lot of prediction to help um, improve healthcare because we can help by using that information, whether it's the employer, the physician, the care team member, they can then help to engage with the individual patient on what's the best course of care, what's the right decision for them to make and help help educate them and help support them in their care journey. So if I'm, let's take an example from Manchester, if I'm Joe Pepe, the CEO of, of Catholic Medical Center here in town, why would I want to buy what would your sales pitch to, to, to Joe be? Sure. So Catholic Medical Center, by way of example, is involved in risk arrangements or value-based arrangements with Medicare and with their commercial insurers. And so they have accountability. You know, once, so maybe I'll go back in time. So back when I was in healthcare back in the 80s in a physician practice, when a patient showed up, you dealt with their whatever they came with on that day, and then they you charged them and they went home. And I didn't really think about that patient unless they came into the office again. The system of care today is that hospital systems who enter into risk arrangements or value-based care have now accountability whether I show up at the hospital or the physician office or I don't. They're responsible for my the outcomes of my overall health both in terms of quality, but as well in terms of cost. And so they can't do that unless they have really good information about that population that they have accountability for. And they tried to do it back in the you know, early mid nineties under capitation. And, but it, they didn't have the right information to make it work at the time. They didn't have the data and the systems at the hospital level to, to make educated decisions about the right care. And so now systems like ours, the analytics then help to support them so that when they enter into these arrangements with Medicare or their insurers, that they know 
that Heather may be, you know, 48 years old and has some asthma and also has a couple of children and um, maybe I'm up to date on all of my preventive services or maybe I have some gaps in my preventive services and they know what risk I am in terms of cost and maybe in terms of admission to the hospital. They also know that they can outreach to me based on if I'm missing, um, you know, a certain part of the preventive care that I should be getting that's based on good outcomes. Um, they their systems would reach out. That's not a very good sales pitch, but it certainly (laughs) explains sort of the way they might use the system. Um, But ultimately, without systems like ours, they're flying blind with the the risk arrangements that they've entered into. And so they would only maybe see information from their electronic health record, but it might not show them, it might not have the risk prediction for the population. They might not be able to see all of their asthmatics or all of their diabetics. It wouldn't be able to allow them to systematically outreach to those groups of patients. And so they may do okay under their risk arrangements, but they um, they might not do all that well. Um, they really need data to inform, you know, what's going on. And so it's it's like in other industries, they've been using data to inform operations for a long time. And in healthcare, unfortunately, we're a laggard in that regard. And so hospitals are, you know, slowly adopting this, but really the reimbursement models have forced some of that adoption. And so the ACOs that I mentioned back in you know the the mid two thousand five to to ten, medical home and ACOs really started that payment reform revolution that that started moving systems to think about how you know how are they accountable for outcomes, not just for getting paid when you show up for a service. Right. So that transition from fee for service to, to value based care. care. So a hospital might enter into an arrangement where they uh, they've got quality measures, but they also have this kind of uh, shared shared savings or shared as well as shared loss potentially. That's correct. Right? And so so you help them kind of predict who from their population might actually get sick, and then they can try to intervene before it happens. That's correct. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Amazing. And they can and they can also see if patients are going out of area. Um, also, if there's you know the the Dartmouth Institute has also always done a wonderful job on looking at unwarranted variation in care. And um, and so you know are are people getting services unnecessarily? Are are physicians ordering broad lab panels? because they were taught to do that in medical school and nobody really thought much otherwise. And is all of that really necessary? If it's if it's important and it's necessary for the patient, absolutely. But many times, maybe an MRI isn't warranted. And so it also helps to look at, our software helps to look at that variation in care across. And so the hospital systems then can look at that. It, it's about whether people are getting the right care at the right time in the right place. And, um, and so it provides them a dashboard to monitor all of that, as well as then to um, to then intervene, interact directly with the patients. But not build it themselves. Uh, it takes a lot of research and development. You need a lot of expertise. and But a lot of health plans built their own systems for a period of time. And, and so when we were selling into health plan organizations, you know, oftentimes the biggest sort of sales delimiter was internal development. But it gets to a point where it's just too costly for them to continue to iterate and and to be sophisticated enough in terms of the software when they're building it internally. And it really requires 
highly specialized skill set. And so a lot of what we do now, you know, leverages machine learning. We have teams of data scientists, and they're hard to come by. And so it's difficult for a community-based hospital to be able to afford the kind of talent it might need to do that. It's a lot cheaper for them to license software than to have to build and support that on their own. I mean, I see a, when I talk about this with my students, I, I see that as a big part of the consolidation that we're seeing in hospitals is this is just one more example of that kind of necessity for scale mm-hmm. that we're seeing in healthcare. And so a lot of it's being driven by the changing in the payment models that we're do you agree with that? Is that, is that I, an accurate that, assessment? I, I absolutely do. And and I would say that the consolidation, particularly with physician practices selling to hospital systems as well, has been because it's been difficult for physician practices to continue to automate and, and, and do everything they need to to run a business or, you know, run an office and everything else independently. There are other models that are cropping up. We've got it right in our back door here. Village MD is a great example of an organization that it's primary care and but they have some shared functions where they can provide for analytics, they can provide for medical record, they can provide for help in contracting and negotiating contracts. They can provide for some of that scaled expertise across a lot of sites. And so there are independent physician practices that are signing up for models like that, again, trying to get some economies of scale and key functions that are shared across the organizations um, in the same way they sold to hospital systems to to try to get access to that as well. And hospital systems, you know, certainly consolidating with one another. Yeah. Um, so to do this work, you have to have access to their data in some way, shape, or form. That's correct. Do they, do you all put it, do, you, do they send it to you and then you work with it or do you give them software that then they run on their own systems? How does that work? Sure. So um, so we sell it as a, as a platform, as a service. And so that means that it runs in the cloud. And so it's not an installed software on boxes that might reside at their site. So it's all cloud-based software, which... I, people talk about cloud-based software now. Choice Links was, we called it an application service provider, but it was the same thing. It was cloud-based at the time. So it's been around for a long time. And, you know, we just have new terminology, but it takes some of the weight of having servers and, um, and distributed networks off. Uh, and um, and centralizes some of that. So they provide us with the data, and so we might get claims data from from health plans. We get even claims data from hospital systems. We get clinical data extracted from their electronic medical records, and they might send it to us as frequently as daily, or you know even maybe for some pieces of data multiple times a day, where the systems update and then recalculate the results so that the system is always up 24-7 for them to be able to access, and we're constantly processing the data behind the scenes on their behalf. Wow. Um, one of the things that I thought was interesting that I came across on your, on your website was um, something you call the Physician Misery Index. Sure. So I've talked to a lot of physicians about, um, about, about uh, uh, burnout, so what is the Physician Misery Index? Um, so we, um, back in 2015, we actually launched a survey because we, you know, we, we've been in the business for a long time. We've certainly heard from our physician colleagues for a number of years that they were feeling um, frustrated with the practice of medicine having changed so radically. And it's at the same time we started to implement electronic health records. We moved to a meaningful use. Value-based care came into play. So they were responsible for reporting against maybe hundreds, um, oftentimes, of quality measures. And those measures might vary from 
each one health plan to another. And, um, and so they, you know, increasingly, we could hear sort of this um, discontent associated with how much administrative work they have to do and how little patient time they have. And why they went into practice in the first place was to treat patients. And yet that now was subordinated to um, all of this sort of bureaucracy that they felt was placed on them. And so we wanted to understand, is this is this just what we're hearing or is this, there really a true thread to this? And so we launched an initial survey, um, to assess sort of what, you know, how, how unhappy were they in a number of areas? And in fact, it, we, at the time, you know, it, it came up fairly high. We actually ran the survey again this year and it actually is increased uh, rather than, um, decreased. So it's almost, it's a scale of one to five and five being terrible and, um, and it's at almost four. So it went from about 3.7, I think, to about 3.9, um, 3.94. So we're just under four of being really, you know, miserable. The most miserable you could be is five that physicians are feeling that way. And there, and it actually skews worse for physician, women physicians. And, 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 you know, all this bureaucratic work is sort of cutting into family time. They're feeling increasingly burnt out. We have a real challenge with physician suicide in our country. You know, when you have that kind of student loan debt and you feel trapped. Um, in your profession and sort of nothing else you might be able to do. Um, I think it leads to, and, and I think we train physicians to be ultimately accountable. And now we're even putting more, more pressure on them to be even more accountable than ever before. I think that it leads to, you know, a fair degree of hopelessness. And, and we wanted to be able to do something to counteract that. And so we've wanted to, in you know, in addition to at the end of the day, wanting to improve cost and quality outcomes, we also wanted to make sure that the people that were using our system on a regular basis were, you know, that their lives were better for it, not worse for it. And and so by measuring the degree of misery or dissatisfaction that they had, it would hold us accountable to making sure that we're doing a good job with our customers and the physicians in, in those organizations. But we've also used it to raise awareness to the challenge and to call upon other health IT companies to look at this with a strong eye as well to specifically design for systems that would actually improve efficiency and not make life worse for, for, for doctors. And we know that the more time that a physician spends with a patient, the sort of the better the outcomes and the more quality time. And oftentimes when you go into a physician practice now, they might have their back to you, they're typing into a keyboard, they're trying to find things in the system. Most of it's just documentation. It's not adding to um, the quality of care that's being rendered in the practice. And so there's, there's certainly ways to optimize workflow to help counteract that. So how does Janina, because you're not a medical records company. We're not, but we provide for care coordination capabilities. And so um, as our um, analytics are embedded into um, Health Cloud, we actually provide for full clinical workflow and decision making. And what we try to do is, uh, you know, when we, and, you know, and this concept goes back even to the concept of the medical home, where the physician should be the quarterback on the team. The physician doesn't have to be the whole team. Right. And that there's lots of things that people could be doing outside of a 
patient visit to help improve that patient's health in working directly with that patient. And so whether it's a medical assistant, whether it's nurses, whether it's social workers in a practice, all can be helping to coordinate that care and um, and helping to identify risk, identify issues, um, help with reminders, provide education. All of that can be done outside of um, an individual patient-physician visit. And so that when the physician is visiting with the patient, that they're better enabled to have a dialogue. We're also doing more to systematically update quality information so there's less keying on the part of physicians. And again, getting other care team members to do that, but also systematically doing that. So we're constantly looking at what else can we do so that there's less that that physician is doing either in the patient visit and or as after work that the system can be doing more of that on their behalf. And so some of it's through analytics and some of it's through enhanced coordination workflows that other care team members can be doing on behalf. So you also provide remote patient monitoring. Mm -hmm. What, What is that? So that's using Bluetooth-enabled devices, or or certainly could even be cabled devices, that measure sort of you know have different sensors and and can measure a patient when they're in the home, like blood pressure readings, um, like weight from a scale. It could be a pulse um, oximeter to measure their pulse. It could be um, an SpO2 monitor to measure the um, sort of the oxygen saturation in their blood. Could have a spirometer that could measure their breathing. And and in fact, devices that we have even have an accelerometer so it can actually measure positioning and movement um, in the home. And it's all to help monitor health of people that are in the home in a way that is pretty unobtrusive and can also give us uh, more accurate data about their health status. And it's, it's not for every patient. It's really for specific patients where that intervention is most appropriate and particularly patients that are high, at highest risk for admission to the hospital, people that have transportation challenges, people that may have communication challenges. But it allows our either our team of nurses and or if we have a customer, they may look at the data to help monitor and they may see alerts when values go out of, out of range for an individual patient. They also can use that, that, that data and we use it to assess sort of future risk as well. Before someone gets a device um, as part of this program, I assume this physician has to say, yes, I want you to, Mark, I want you to wear this thing. Or, or is it, who, 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 well, who directs that? Who, who kind of makes that decision? Sure. There, so, um, so there are some devices that require prescription. There are also devices that don't necessarily um, require a prescription. But in all cases, it is best to collaborate with the practice, the physician of the patient who's involved in the program. So by way of example, we provide this on behalf of patients, members of Capital Blue Cross. And um, and so we work with the, phys- the, the, the member's physician so that we um, have communication with them if their results go outside of range. But we really reach out to the member, the patient themselves, to ask if they're interested in being involved in the program. Program, if they're interested in having the assistance and working with a nurse to make sure that we help to keep them well and, and we get strong reception to that. And we work with people that are recently discharged from the hospital, but people on an ongoing basis as well. I mean, so like I wear a Fitbit. That's obviously not a prescription. I, well, I'm not wearing it right now, but I have. Um, that's not a prescription. That's an example of kind of this. Not, it's not really monitoring unless I link it up to something, right? 
That's correct. And, and I think you'll see more of the monitoring. And there's a lot of, I think, you know, discussion in the field right now about Apple watches because Apple is going more than just the number of steps and or, you know, your heart rate, but they're measuring more than that now. And I, and, and, one of the challenges in the field is is the accuracy of the data and and physicians ability particularly to take on all of this information and then manage people who have false positives also manage patients who really are low risk but now they're getting all of this data on people that they normally hadn't interacted with and maybe aren't being reimbursed for outside of the visit so there's there i think one of the benefits that we have of this being consumer driven is it will force the industry to change and healthcare needs outside forces to change because it's slow to change on its own because it 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 isn't a true consumer driven industry like banking or retail where you know consumers have a much greater say and so i think the this will force i think different ways of interacting with low risk um, individuals, you know, we have a burgeoning pre-diabetes problem in our country, and that it's sort of a sleeping giant that is very costly currently, but is going to be incredibly costly in the future um, with a high rate of obesity that's increasing. And so, this is a perfect opportunity with some of these sort of low risk, low acuity level um, monitoring devices to help engage that with that population. The system of healthcare hasn't figured out quite how to. Do deal with all of that yet, but um, but it will play catch up. But it is a way of, of helping to manage and, and monitor, you know, across the population. And most organizations, hospital systems, and health plans have been focused on just the highest risk right now, but are really thinking about how, how do they help the whole population um, as they're starting to get data. That's one of the benefits that of machine learning, artificial intelligence is it's perfectly designed to handle volumes and volumes of data. It's also, there's lots of systems that are also um, designed to help quiet false positives. And so it can help for quieting some of those false signals in healthcare in the same way it has been used in like the missile defense system in terms of quieting false positives in, in other industries. Um, and so that I think is a perfect application for artificial intelligence is to to consume some of this data and really identify where there's true risk and and make recommendations as to um, sort of the best interventions for different populations. Wow. So, I mean, this I could be getting a message at some point from my insurer saying, hey, we'd like you to start wearing some device mm-hmm. because we've noticed something about your use of uh, you know, the results from your last tests or the use of medical care that you've had and mm-hmm. I might just get a call in sometime in the future saying, hey, we'd like you to start wearing this kind of monitor. Yeah, would you be interested? You still have to provide consent. Uh-huh. And, you know, so there's still, I think with, with healthcare, there has to be, I, we've, we've looked for so many years, we thought, well, if we just give the right incentive, people will do it. Well, we're all motivated by different things, right? We all, um, we all have uh, different goals and we all have different motivators. And so not everyone wants, would agree to participating and it may not be effective. Even if you agreed to it, you might leave it on the shelf and never wear it anyway. Right. And, um, and so, so part of the dialogue that the health plan might have with you is, you know, what's important to you in your life? We see that you might be at risk for a heart 
heart attack and you have children, you know, you probably want to be around for those children. And what can we do to help you reduce the, reduce the chance that you may in fact have a heart attack in the future? And, and what else can we do besides just monitoring some of your health status? You know, what about diet? What about, what about, what about other lifestyle changes can we help you to make um, that also puts you in a better position for having strong health? We've talked about Theon. We've talked about remote monitoring. Mm -hmm. Other major product lines, Virginia. Sure. So we have then just complementary services. So I mentioned the Genia Institute, which is our education and training arm. Because a lot of these concepts are new in the industry, um, we also provide um, training on, you know, what is population health? How do you use data to stratify a population? How do nurses use data in, you know, in the new realm? And, um, and, and what are more effective techniques than others? How do you do motivational interviewing? So, so we train and educate, uh, you know, all range of, of people in, in healthcare. And then we have professional services that we provide as well to help improve um, maybe practices, to help do practice transformation. Um, we help reorganize companies that now have implemented you know, new capabilities. They may need to change their structure as they've, uh, as they've implemented analytics and what that might look like. And so, so our professional services team will go in and, and certainly do business strategy, do data analysis on top of our analytics platform, and then also do sort of um, you know, business process type of consulting and transformation work. What are you most excited about coming forward technology, like looking into the five years, ten years into the future? What's, what's like, this is going to be amazing. I mean, I think we've, we've, we've been ta I've been talking certainly about the promise of, of machine learning and artificial intelligence for, you know, probably, you know, sort of seven, seven to nine years already. But it's, you know, there's still an adoption curve associated with it. And, um, but I do think it provides tremendous promise. You know, we have access to more data sources than ever before. Um, we're starting to get access to information about people's social situation as well, called social determinants of health. And so using some of that contextual information to better help people. You know, we have a, a population that, uh, an aging population of boomers that turns, 10,000 of them turn age 65 every day and will for, you know, more than 15 years. And so we've got to find new in unique ways to help keep them healthy and provide for sort of a, a, a long um, lifetime for them. We don't have enough hospital beds. We don't have enough nursing home beds. And many of them don't want to be in a nursing home anyway. And so how do we leverage technology to help then support their life and then the generations that come after them? And and I, I definitely think using contextual information um, about their social situation. So do they have, do they live alone? Do they have barriers to transportation? Are they really far from even a bus stop? Are, do they live in a food desert? You know, are they, are they living only on canned foods, which are, have a lot of sodium and which may mean if they have some kind of heart disease that could actually provide for increased fluid intake. And so provide using that, that social information also then using machine learning and artificial intelligence to plow through all of this data and provide greater predictions because because there's more data than we can sort of humanly address um, and and also using machine learning we can tie together lots of different data sources that you might not normally tie have tied together which includes social determinant information um, but certainly might include 
atmospheric information so that we could pull in information about the air pollution at the time and so that we could automatically send alerts to seniors to turn on their air conditioning or to not go outside on high pollen count days or high pollution days. And and it's just one example of, of sort of different ways that we could use lots of different types of information to then help support people in their lifestyle. I did want to close on a couple of thoughts on, on leadership. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned earlier, you know, I've spent my life, uh, my working career in large organizations. You've, you've kind of spent on the opposite end in a lot of startups and creating things kind of from the ground up. And I, I just, I'm curious, what leadership lessons, what leadership challenges do you face uh, or have you faced as a, uh, someone who has been an entrepreneur, kind of a serial entrepreneur? If you, is that? I guess I think that's an accurate statement. <laughs> yep. Um, you know, like, what does it take to be a good leader in that environment? I th- well, I, I definitely think it takes a growth mindset. So, you, you know, you have to be continually willing to self-examine, evaluate the mistakes that you've made, and look at how you might be able to do a better job and learn from others that have come before you. And that could be in any form. I mean, I look not only at leaders in business and sort of, you know, voraciously consume podcasts about leaders all over in that might be in sport who lead teams, you know, how do they, how do they motivate? How do they better understand their teams? At the end of the day, companies are about the people. And, and so it's always a people challenge. And so how do you, you know, how do you show enough trust, enough authenticity and to help people grow and to help them thrive in the environment. And when the people are good, then the the services will be good and the product will be good. But people ha- need to feel safe and they need to be, feel appreciated and, and they need to feel like they can voice concerns about challenge, risk, that they have to be, have an open environment to be able to do that. And, you know, they, I mean, the long, you know, well said saying that, you know, uh, that uh, culture trumps strategy on any given day. And, and that's absolutely the truth. And, and I, and I heard a, a really good quote just recently. It's from um, Scott Creens, who is the founder of um, 1440 Multiversity. And he said, and I'm paraphrasing, but effectively, it's it's really not about the choice. It's about making the choice right once it's made. So it's not about, especially in a startup, it's not about door one or door two. It's once you pick that door, then then full bore ahead in terms of continuing to adjust to make sure that that door is the right door. And it's the after work that makes it the right door, and it's the people that you, you know, that you work with that get that door to be right. And, and so I think it's, it's just, it's always a, a process in learning, learning from others and learning from the team has, you know, makes all the difference. How do you find the right people? I mean, so one of the things I was telling you earlier, I'm, I'm working on, a, I've been working on a, um, a leadership model. And, and one of the common, well, one of the common errors that people make that they report is they don't get the right people on the team. And, and a part of that is, you know, you get, they're great people, but they're not, they don't have the right cultural fit or something like that. How do you make sure that you get the right people for your team? Yeah. So, so you're never a hundred percent, right? The CEO of LinkedIn has said, I mean, they have phenomenal ratings, but, and you never get it right a hundred percent, but you have to make it right 
<laughs> um, after and you have to give people the right opportunity to make it right on their own and be really open and honest. And so we do all that we can to assess for um, cultural alignment. We hire in um, individual, we do individual interviews, we do teams, and we all have assigned questions that get to specific examples of in a candidate's background that address the different areas, our different cultural values and to, to assess them out. And then we all have to agree um, before we hire an individual. Even with that, sometimes, you know, sometimes, you, lots of times you get it right. Sometimes you make a mistake. And, and, and we, we really think about when, when we didn't get it right. Like, what did we miss? How did we get it wrong? And, but we also have, you know, we have lots of conversations with our team members too about when we see things going astray. So it, you know, it's, you, you all, there's a lots of opportunity for people to course correct and to fix. It may be that there may be a, even a misunderstanding on the part of the employee. Employee side, and so we really work hard with with people to understand, you know, what what we're looking for, and and how, and and also understand from them how do we then best support them. So it's it's the back to the decision. It's once you make it, you know, how do you make it right as well, and and so it's we put a lot of emphasis in the company about the culture of the company, and not only training. It's a major goal of ours every single year is actually the cultural health of the organization. Um, we've spent a lot of time with using some of the principles from Patrick Lencioni on trust and 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 but everyone's performance is evaluated mid-year and at the end of the year and throughout the course of the year um, also based on the the corporate values and and also working towards a, a, a culture of one genia so it's it's a constant effort above across everyone in the organization to continue to make it right by the organization what does what does a culture of one genia it's not one department or another. It's not one person or another. It's how we all succeed together. And because it's easy to get siloed in, in a company and, and for one department to blame another department, we're all in it together. We all share the same goals. And so how do we overcome some of those barriers? And what do we do as an overall, not only just as a leadership team, but as as all of us as individuals in the organization, what are we all doing to make sure that we're supporting um, that culture? And we keep it as a, you know, as a major goal and a focus because anything you don't attend to, you know, if you could have a perfect garden, um, but if you don't water the garden, it's going to fail. And so we all have to continue to water the garden and remind ourselves to water the garden to make sure that we're thriving. As you know, I teach a lot of young folks, undergrads, undergrads who are studying healthcare administration. Why should they choose? Why should they look at health IT analytics in particular as a as a career? Well, as I mentioned, cited the statistic earlier, we um, only have a growing aging population. So when you think about um, an industry, the market need is only growing. So it's not going away. That's that's for certain. And we have to get more efficient in how we support people um, because there are more elderly than there are caregivers for the elderly. So we have to leverage technology in order to be able to better support people. And, and, and I think people, you know, are interested in technology as a whole. So it's, you know, there's this significant need and that will drive a significant workforce need. And, you know, and, and we all interact with health. Every one of us um, interact with the healthcare system at some point in our life. And typically, you know, every, almost every month and certainly every year, 
um, have some degree of interaction. So it's something that we all have a degree of understanding of and, and will continue to be um, a need um, for all of us forever. And uh, so it, so I think in terms of there being a strong market for it in the future, there's a strong market for it in the future. And, um, and there's a real gap in talent right now. We struggle to fill, we leave many positions open, some for years. We have an overall low unemployment rate in New Hampshire, overall low unemployment employment rate nationally, but particularly in healthcare technology, there's a, there's a significant need and a gap in, um, in available talented personnel. So it's a great area to get into um, and can make a great career out of. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been great. Thank you for the opportunity. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community. And we'll talk with you again soon.